Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Right, welcome back to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And we've got lots to talk about, Rory. We've got the economy. Gordon Brown is back across the airwaves. Oh, you, that's interesting. You said, said, didn't say Gordon. Normally you say Gordon. What happened there? Uh, Gordon Brown. I'm, I'm referring to him by his full <laughs> name because it's the, this is the pompous introduction of the podcast. And thank you for interrupting me. Uh, I also want to talk about politicians and holidays. I want to talk about Ukraine. And I know you're interested in, uh, we haven't really talked about Ukraine much in recent weeks. And I was fascinated by the Amnesty International report and the fallout from it. You, I know, want to talk about the Biden administration. This is the first real US climate bill that's ever been passed in the 55 years of talking about this. It's about much more than climate, though, isn't it? This is about dealing with inflation. It's about getting the economy going. Uh, it's about healthcare. It's about corporation tax. I mean, there's a big, 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 big package. 100%. And then I think you want to do China, Taiwan with us? China, Taiwan, a bit of Colombia as well. The new president, Petro, is saying that the war on drugs has failed. And I think if we've got time, we should have a little go at uh, Partygate and the pathetic attempts by Dacre and Dorries to help Johnson get out of the legitimate inquiry into the fact that he's a liar. Um, and also, I think we'll do a little bit of uh, The Rest is Politics Bingo, a wonderful new game that's been invented by somebody called James Thomas. Now, I don't know if you know this. We started the podcast. Do you remember when we started the podcast? We started the podcast in March, didn't we? Correct. And we've said probably too often, because we don't like to be smug, but we have emphasised fairly often that it's been a bit of a hit. It's still number one in the charts. And I think we've both been, we've both been surprised. Let's be honest, we have both been surprised. Yeah, no, I'm astonished. I, I had no idea at all that the two of us would work in this way. Well, whatever the recipe... We are keen to give people more of it, and that's why today we are launching something called The Rest is Politics Plus. It's a subscription service that gives you the ability to support what we're trying to do directly, but also gives benefits as well. If you sign up, you're going to listen to it through the subscription ad-free forever. That includes the full back catalogue. You'll also get early access to the Question Time episode and the first option on any tickets for live shows. More on that in a minute. And it's very, very easy to sign up. You go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. It takes less than a minute. And once you've done it, the exclusive members-only podcast feed sits inside whatever app you usually use to listen to us. So you listen to us exactly the same way you always have, but without any ads and with early access to question time to listen to at your leisure. So in other words... If you want to pay, it's going to cost £3.49 a month. You will get it without the adverts. But very important to emphasize that if you don't want to sign up, the pod will always be available for free, as is now. You might just have to put up with some of our beautifully read adverts. Now, part two of our exciting announcement before we get on to the guts of today. We are doing our second ever live show. We are finally going to be, again, in the same place at the same time. And the place is none other than one of my favourite venues on the planet, many happy memories of political party conferences, the Winter Gardens Blackpool. Brilliant. Saturday, the 8th of October at 8pm. Now, tickets go on general sale next week. But if you do sign up for The Rest is Politics Plus, you can get them today with a 10% discount which pretty much would cover your first month's membership anyway. So if you want to grab those live tickets today, this is Blackpool, Saturday the 8th of October, 8pm, 
and it's going to be part of the Festival of the North, a new spoken word and written word festival organized by my wonderful friend Elaine from Silverdale Books. And you can sign up at therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. And now, Rory, I think it's probably time to get on with the podcast. Lovely. Let's kick off with the economy then. You you, uh, convinced that we're going into a 10-year global recession, and William Hague and I were both depressed by your relentless predictions about that last week. Can you explain to me what's going on, that we do have a prime minister across the airwaves talking about what we need to do to try to deal with this cost of living crisis, but the prime minister left office 12 years ago, and we do have a chancellor talking about these things, but it's the chancellor who is the same person who left office as chancellor 15 years ago, Whereas Boris Johnson and Nadim Zahawi vanished off the face of the earth. Yeah, it's a real problem, isn't it? I mean, it's partly a problem of classic lame duck problem, isn't it? I mean, how on earth are Boris Johnson and Nadim Zahawi supposed to lay out any economic policy when they know they're going to be out in three months? So it's a, it's a really dangerous time. I mean, it's, and of course, this is one of the many arguments that Boris Johnson tried to use to stay in was to say it's a difficult time. He tried to say it by talking about the Ukraine war, but he would have been actually had a better argument to say, look, we are going into this very, very difficult economic condition. We need a bit of stability and predictability. And I think if you're the markets looking at Britain at the moment, you simply don't know what's going to happen. And it's Mm. very odd for for right the way through for the next few weeks, people will not know are taxes going up or are taxes going down? Is borrowing going up or is borrowing going down? Are they going to try to get a real radical quick grip on inflation or are they going to let it run? Are they going to control public sector pay or aren't they? I mean, these are such fundamental questions at a time when the whole global economy is juddering. But Rory, you talk about the lame duck thing and there's Johnson who, I mean, I think it underlines what a terrible mistake it was by the cabinet to force him out, but at the same time, allow him to stay for his taxpayer funded holidays and weddings and all the stuff that he's been doing. But Mario Draghi is also a lame duck. And yet Mario Draghi is on a day-to-day basis trying to address some of these issues as the outgoing Prime Minister of Italy. Just because the Johnson is not going to be there beyond September the 5th doesn't mean he can do nothing. And likewise, Zahawi, I mean, I know you you take, you take keep talking about Zahawi being a friend of yours and a very distinguished, distinguished <laughs> member of the Conservative Party. But Rory, he came up with the most extraordinary phrase the other day. He said, he's not on holiday, but he's with his family as they have a holiday. Now, um, I, I can't even begin to unbundle that one. I've been on working holidays. All your holidays are working holidays, aren't they, basically? You're actually technically on holiday at the moment, aren't you, Alistair? <laughs> technically, yes. So presumably so, he's taking an Alistair Campbell-style holiday. Yeah, but what is he doing about the economy? And, and honestly, when you read, the, the thing about, say what you like about Gordon Brown, I know you've said before that actually you think you really admire the way Gordon Brown has conducted himself in his kind of post-prime ministerial life. But the, I, recommend, I really do recommend that people dig up the whole piece that he wrote in the, in the Observer about the current situation. And he's giving sensible ideas. He's basically saying, look, OK, you've got the Conservative leadership election going on. That means that either Truss or Sunak is going to be prime minister shortly. They need to sit down with Johnson, with Zahawi, with the Bank of England if need be, and work out a strategy to deal with this, because if not, we are talking about fuel poverty statistics in our country in a few weeks and months' time that are utterly terrifying. 50% of children are going to be in, in poverty. It's, it's horrifying. And and some of the recent estimates, I mean, a typical bill, £3,850 a year is the current projection for a typical bill. 
So remember what's happened is the government's put in a £400 discount, £150 rebate, £650 payment for low-income households. But it looks as though what's happening to typical bills is going to go so far beyond any of the measures the government's yet taken. It's not going to cover, it's not going to cover the rise at all. And if you've got kids, I mean, some of the, the universal credit figures for a family with young kids, you're talking, a, you're talking about £2.60 a week per child. So we, we, we're talking about fuel, but inflation rises probably 13% is the latest estimate. That means obviously everything that you're buying goes up. Food prices are going to soar. Clothes prices are going to soar. So anybody frozen on a low income is, is going to be in a tougher and tougher situation. But part of what's happening here is that as we saw in those debates, there is quite unusually a very, very clear economic divide between these two candidates. We don't know, actually, uh, unless we are confident this trust is going to win, what economic policy is coming out of the end of this. We know what both their economic policies are, and they are very, very different. This trust seems to be very unusually for somebody who's meant to be from the right wing of the Conservative Party, basically going for more debt, higher deficit, higher public spending, and lower taxes. Whereas Rishi Sunak seems to be going for the more traditional, fiscally conservative move of trying to balance the budget. He doesn't want to rack it up, debt and deficit, and he will do those things by actually raising taxes, classic treasury move and reducing public spending. So getting to the bottom of this is going to be critical. And it's a big gamble either way. The point that Gordon Brown, the point that Gordon, Gordon (laughs) Brown has been making is that that's all fine. And that's all the politics and the economics to come in related to this leadership election. But literally within a matter of weeks, millions of families are going to be tipped into poverty. Um, And that is going to have to be addressed before Liz Truss manages to get her tax plans through as well. One of our listeners made the, an, a very interesting observation, I thought. He, they define Liz Truss's economic approach as a pound plummeting strategy and suggested that this was maybe all being manipulated by the disaster capitalists who stand to make another killing like they did on Brexit. And I'm afraid I'm beginning to think that. I do think these people are just disaster capitalists. This Have you been following, Rory? I, I tweeted something this morning. Somebody has posted, somebody called Matt Prescott has posted on social media all the plans for all the different free ports and charter cities and so forth. I mean, they're taking up a very, very large part of our country where they're going to be freed from the laws of the land. I'm afraid this is the sovereign individual Brexit revolution going on here, Rory. I mean, they're not freed from all the laws of the land. You can't go around murdering people there, right? The, the point is that they have, okay. they're, they're freed from some of the economic <laughs> restrictions of the land. Yeah, okay, okay. I accept that was over the top. I should also say, Roy, you've, as, as you've reminded me of my, my, my non-perfection on the factual front, I've got to give a bit of rebuttal here just to show that we, we're, we're prepared to take it. I said last week that if Liz Truss became prime minister, it would be the first time in her history that the monarch and the prime minister would have the same first name. And you remember what I said? Do you remember what I I remember you said, I bet you'll find a George somewhere. Well, within literally, within five minutes of this bloody podcast going live, Robert Shrimsley of the Financial Times sent me three, not one, but three examples of prime ministers who shared the name of a monarch. And what were they? You were right. George Grenville was the Prime Minister between 1763 and 1765 at the time that George III was in, in uh, was king. Uh, George Canning. Now, why is George Canning a historical footnote, Rory? 
Uh, because of the duel, great duel that he fought with Castlereagh. The, no, George George Canning is a historical footnote in this context because he was the shortest serving prime minister ever. 119 days, he became very, very ill. He was the prime minister at the time of George IV in 1827. And the third one that the wretched Robert Shrimsley dug up was William Lamb, a.k.a. Lord Melbourne. Oh, God blimey. And he was there at the time of William IV and subsequently of Queen Victoria. Ah. Um, and he was, by the way, the last British prime minister to be dismissed by a monarch. He was sacked by his namesake, but then came back under Victoria. So thank you, Robert Shrimsley. Yes, you are very clever. Yes, go to the top of the class. Well done, isn't the Financial Times a great paper? Brilliant. And let's just do a little shout out for George Canning. So j- just to remind people, I, I get, I'm a bit fuzzy on my history, but my memory is that in 1809, the Castlereagh, who I think was the war minister, and George Canning was then the foreign secretary. So it would be like Liz Truss and Ben Wallace at the moment. Gotten around. So hold on. This is, this is, this is, a, this is 18 years before he became prime minister. Is this right? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long, long Blimey. way back. Yeah. So Blimey. these two are an absolute standoff in what's going on and they end up getting into a duel. And the <laughs> happened 6 a.m. on Putney Heath. Canning had never fired a pistol in his life. So George Canning, much more sort of uh, not not a grand aristocrat in the same way. Robert Stewart, Viscount Castlereagh, of course, you know, very fond of him because, of course, he's a relative of mine, had been doing quite doing quite a lot of dueling in the way that dueling that aristocrats did. He'd managed to try to shoot shoot <laughs> shoot a girl's guardian in Ireland. Um, they end up on the lawn uh, firing at each other, um, and uh, one shot hit a button on Castlereagh's coat. Castlereagh's second struck Canning in the thigh after the first two missed. Roy, how do you know this? I try to look some of this stuff up occasionally. But, I, but hold on, hold on, no, hold on a minute. How, why did you look up George Canning? Well, I'm fascinated by these people. I mean, I think it's extraordinary that they got managed to get in a... I mean, t- two cabinet ministers and the same government going out on the lawn to shoot at each other. But did you know that I was going to raise George Canning? Did I tip you off? No, you did not tip me off that you were going to raise George Canning. So you've just got this stuff in your head. I'm, I'm sort of blown away by this. Well, it's very sweet of you. I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is that I, it's a bit fuzzy. So what's going to happen is Robert Shrimsey is going to come back and say, <laughs> no, you were wrong. It was Putney Heath in 1808. And actually it didn't. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I think one or other of them then committed suicide eventually. I've told you before, or you can't say commit suicide. He ended his own life. It's no longer a crime. Thank you. I guess back then it was a crime. Maybe back then technically you're okay. But Now, you wanted to bring us on to Ukraine from one sort of violence to another. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I just think, is, you know, last week we got, we actually got, I was a bit worried about it. And I know, you, I think you were as well, about the fact that the way that we talked about terrorists and you need to tr- understand that they're, you know, they're not all stupid and they're not evil and they're not all cowards. And, that, that, you know, that there's there's something going on there. And I actually was quite pleased. A lot of people said it was the first time they'd heard a sort of fairly nuanced discussion. And I just felt I had a similar reaction to some of this stuff that's been doing the rounds about Ukraine and this Amnesty International report, because the Amnesty International report on Ukraine um, has had a lot of coverage, a lot of coverage. And the headline in the, in the press release was Ukrainian fighting tactics endanger civilians military bases set up in residential areas including schools and hospitals attacks have been launched from populated civilian areas now it then says such violations in no way justify russia's indiscriminate attacks which have killed and injured countless civilians now the the person who who heads the amnesty international operation in ukraine has resigned 
Um, Amnesty International has been absolutely savaged by the Ukrainian government and others, and, and, and indeed by media around the world. And the problem I have with this is that how are we... Of course, you've got media there and media can do their best, but, you know, media can't really get to the truth of these stories, particularly, I think, in wartime. How are we meant to judge these situations and how are we meant to know what is actually going on? We know we can't trust what the Russians say about what they're doing. So I sort of, I felt, I'm probably going to get absolutely savage by this in certain parts, but I felt a little bit sorry for Amnesty International. It struck me we're trying to do the job that they're meant to do which is judge the behavior yep. of governments against accepted international standards. And they've done that and they've been absolutely savaged well, for it. Well, be- before we get on to the arguments against, because you're completely right, we, it is worth exploring why people are so angry, but also thinking about what it must have been like for the boss, I guess, of Amnesty International to make that call mm. and how difficult that would have been. So your Ukrainian country director is going to resign. You know that when you put this report out, you're going to be condemned around the world. You know that because mm. you're not naive, that the Russians are going to immediately use it. The, yeah. the point is the Russians have spent the last few months saying whenever they've bombed a hospital or anything like that, it's because the Ukrainians are using them as forward operating bases. Yeah, um, And yet you put it out. And I think that if nothing else, there are principles there and there's courage there. Now, what's the argument on the other side? The argument on the other side is that the problem with the report is it seems to be blaming the Ukrainians for the fact they're being shelled. And there is nothing the Ukrainians are doing which is breaking international humanitarian law. So if you're from the Ukrainian's point of view, you're defending your own territory. Mm. You're looking for spaces to put stuff. Often, actually, unfortunately, places like schools, hospitals are very good places to garrison your soldiers when you're trying to defend a town. Mm. And you're being blamed for the fact that the Russians, who've got far more artillery than you are, are shelling you in your own town, in your own country. But the very, the very first paragraph of the Amnesty International uh, press release says, Ukrainian forces have put civilians in harm's way by establishing bases and operating weapons systems in populated residential areas, including schools and hospitals, as they repel the Russian invasion that began in February, Amnesty International said today. Such tactics violate international humanitarian law and endanger civilians as they turn civilian objects into military targets. So that that isn't true. It doesn't violate international humanitarian law, says he, kind of trying to be a bit pompous here. Um, International humanitarian law does not actually require the defender to set up their artillery positions outside a civilian residential area. Mm. And that's particularly not a requirement on somebody who's defending their cities from invasion. So that's amnesty overstepping. Well, that's a very, very, in which case, Rory, that's a very, very big thing for the Amnesty International to do. The, the quote then from the, their Secretary General, Agnes Kalamar, is being in a defensive position does not exempt the Ukrainian military from respecting international humanitarian law. So they are being absolutely clear that in their view, this breaches international humanitarian law. There's obviously a big disagreement here because mm. the UN have come out and said, or a UN spokesman has come out and said that in their view, it does not break international humanitarian law. Yeah. So there's obviously some big, I mean, the problem with international humanitarian law is that there aren't, it's very difficult to get to the bottom of because it doesn't operate through courts in exactly the same yeah. way as our domestic law does. Um, yeah. Listen, Ukraine, just going forward for a second. Um, so the summer is going to be vital the next few months because mm. this is when we're going to expect Russia to do assaults on the southeast and when we're going to expect Ukraine probably to do counter assaults, take stuff back. 
Two things which maybe have been reported a bit in the media, but maybe not enough, which are worth thinking about. One of them is the Russians have put one of their really big bases, not actually in a residential area, school or a hospital, but in their case, in the largest nuclear plant in Europe. Mm. So that's the Zaporizhia plant. And that is really, really dangerous because there is a serious possibility through something going wrong that we could end up with a Chernobyl times three. Yeah, yeah. Um, 15, 20,000 Russian soldiers being killed, probably 85% of their field army deployed. So the big thing to look for is, is Putin going to call out a draft? At the moment, he's trying to fight it all with a volunteer army. They're very, very overstretched. If he's really going to try to take Kiev and push back into Ukraine, he's going to have to do a conscription, which so far he's been reluctant to do because he hasn't wanted to say that it's any more than a, a niche special military operation. Mm, mm. On the other hand, as I keep saying, I don't think we should underestimate the Russians. I don't think we should get too complacent about any of this. Just one final point on the amnesty thing. I, I, I was so fascinated. I went back and read amnesty reports about Ukraine prior to the invasion. Yep. And they, and they were pretty negative. Okay. Impunity for torture, endemic, gender-based violence, widespread, homophobic attacks by groups advocating discrimination. I just wonder if there's a bit of history here. that I just don't know. But I, I, I think it's a really, really interesting story. But it sort of just troubled me that we don't – because I look at Amnesty International a little bit as well. I know they've got a you know small P political agenda and – but at the same time, you do kind of, I, I sort of do trust them and I want to trust them. Well, I, I think that, I mean, they're an incredibly important, useful organization. The other one, of course, is, is Human Rights Watch. You must have had huge experience of these guys when you were at the Department of International Development. Yeah, and, and in Afghanistan. And actually, I, was, I ran a center on human rights in Harvard. So Amnesty and HRW are the two really big, um, the kind of big, big players in the human rights field. And they have to do a very difficult job because they are often relying on people who who maybe some of them are ex-journalists, stringers, NGO activists to get into very dangerous areas of countries mm. in order to produce these reports. I And sometimes they get it wrong. One of those organizations produced a report on Western Afghanistan. And, and again, the reason I was so angry about it, it was a huge attack on the governor of Herat in Western Afghanistan, accusing him of being responsible for a whole series of atrocities. They got it wrong. They got it backwards. A lot of these atrocities have been done by his opponents, and their report was used as an excuse to topple him and create what I thought was a very dangerous new move towards a centralized state, and I thought mm. provided space for the Taliban. But they are in a very difficult situation, and they just, I think, I suppose, maybe this is where you're coming from, they have to put those reports out without worrying too much about the political use to which they could be put because, of course, everything mm. they produce is put to a political use. They just have to make sure they've got their facts right. But when you go, when you, when you go so the, the, the report for, for 2021, uh, lots about torture, gender-based violence and d domestic violence remain widespread, support services for survivors uh, and measures to combat domestic violence remain insufficient, no progress made in ratification of the Council of Europe Convention on combating and preventing violence against women and domestic violence. And it, it also, you know, this, this is what I think happens in, in our, the way that we now debate things and the way that, that con conventions and views, conventional wisdoms become formed. So in, in our part of the world and in the States and in most of Europe, Ukraine have become the good guys about everything and we want to do everything for Ukraine. But then when somebody stands up and says, for example, well, hold on a minute, like Macron, for example, in relation to the European Union, you know, they've still got to go through all the processes. When you then read this kind of stuff, 
not looking at it through the prism of the current conflict, but looking at it through the, the prism of a pre-conflict lens, you maybe get a, a slightly different take. Yeah, well, that's, of course, one of the reasons why Vladimir Putin was uh, much more confident when he went in, because Ukraine had a very bad reputation in a number of ways. You know, as you say, those things and the general sense of corruption and oligarchs. And, and of course, he did all this polling where he convinced himself the government was unbelievably unpopular. Yet again, um, I think you are right that Amnesty Human Rights Watch have to be able to put out these reports without seeming to influence politics. I mean, of course, that brings us to what's been happening in Gaza recently, because, of course, Mm. nobody gets more uh, fire than these organizations when they try to report on fights in Israel-Palestine. So, for example, uh, in the recent conflict uh, in Gaza, there's been another outbreak, probably the worst outbreak of fighting for more than a year now. If people haven't been following it, uh, we've ended up with a situation which I think 40 have been killed. And of those, probably a dozen of them are children yeah. uh, in the fighting. Uh, and yet again, you know, it's you in all these conflicts, you're into were they co-located with Islamic Jihad fighters, Palestine Islamic Jihad fighters? Were some of them killed by misfiring weapons fired by the people in Gaza or were they killed by the Israelis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think this reporting has got to keep going. And there was some great reporting done actually against us in Iraq and Afghanistan, trying to total up the number of casualties in those Mm. places. And Mm. we have to look at that stuff and take it seriously. I also got in real trouble with your friend Johnny Mercer and others for trying to support investigations into what our soldiers were accused of doing in Iraq. Again, that's very, very sensitive. People feel, Mm. you know, our soldiers are on the ground, they're making difficult decisions, and here are a bunch of human rights lawyers pursuing them for what they're doing. But I was dealing with the fact that I had Iraqis that I trusted coming to me and describing very, very clearly and very credibly that they felt that they had been assaulted by British troops. Mm. And I felt that it was absolutely right for those things to be investigated, just as because otherwise... Everything we do is a hypocritical mess. You get, I mean, I found this in Iraq. I found myself standing up saying to Iraqi policemen who'd been torturing people, we don't torture. And then they come back and say, well, look at what you're doing in Abu Ghraib. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, but it is this sort of lack of nuance. And and I do think one of the, the downsides of the, the, the extent to which in recent years there has been this sense of we care a lot less about human rights than we did, we care a lot less about the rule of law than we did, is it does, um, it de-amplifies our voice when it comes to actually trying to get other governments to be better than they are and, 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 and operate in the way that we, we might want them, want them to do. But I, I think the, the, other, the other sort of, you're talking there about the nuclear annihilation point, um, which I think I agree is quite is very 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 scary. But the other the other situation now that I think is developing into something where really you do worry about whether a, a misunderstanding could just tip into something terrible, and that is Taiwan. Um, now we talked last week about Nancy Pelosi. I think we were we were talking on the morning that she arrived. Since when there have been these extraordinary military manoeuvres by the Chinese, which I think they said they were going to go in for a few days. They're, they're, they're carrying on. Um, and I still can't quite get to the bottom. I've seen nothing that helps me get to the bottom to answer the question whether this was genuinely a freelance operation by Nancy Pelosi or whether Joe Biden is had, had signed off on it. Well, yeah. maybe maybe that's something to, to – we'll do something unusual and maybe go into the break now and return to a bit of China-Taiwan in a second. 
you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And we were talking about Taiwan before the break. Yeah. So just on that, I mean, if people want to get a sense of quite how strange what the Chinese are doing, there's a really good illustration on the New York Times website, 3rd August, which shows the approximate missile paths. And what you can see is these Chinese missile batteries, of which there are thousands upon thousands, firing from the land two of them right over the top of Taiwan and uh, falling straight, I don't think five missiles straight over the top, falling in the sea behind it, Mm. and the others bracketing it on the north and the south. So a very, very clear reminder of the reality, which is that China could, I'm afraid, destroy almost all uh, of the infrastructure in Taiwan with those missiles if it wanted to, and it's just illustrating it with its attacks. One of the things they presumably are trying to do. I've always found this whole thing about military manoeuvres, I've, I've never quite understood. <laughs> it's a very, very expensive way of, of registering your disquiet or something. But it's also showing, is it meant to show that their conventional forces have are overwhelmingly superior to yes. Taiwan, yeah. even though Taiwan's pretty well armed for a relatively small place? I think it's pretty, I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. But it's also meant to tell the Americans that you should be terrified as well because, you know, we you're going to come near and you're going to be right within our range. Yeah, and they dropped them pretty close. I mean, you know, th- these these are within a few tens of miles of the edge of the Taiwan coast on each side. You would have seen them splashing into the water around. I mean, it's it's... The other thing is that China has now put new bans on exports to Taiwan. So they've banned the export of sand, which, of course, is completely vital for concrete cement building. Um, and if you look at the geography... It's very, very difficult resupplying Taiwan. The other thing they've done, of course, is to is to announce that they're no longer going to be cooperating in the same way on matters to do with military and climate. So that's why I, I, I kind of am a bit puzzled as to whether... I know Nancy Pelosi has got these very long-standing views, but she's also quite close to Biden. And it, it just seems strange that this should have happened the way that it did. So is it like just a sort of swan song as she's kind of saying farewell to the international stage? Or is Joe Biden kind of tacitly saying, this is okay, I just can't work it out? It's very weird because the Biden administration has been briefing very, very clearly that they warned her against it. But she did arrive in a US military jet. So... (laughs) Um, so, uh, and she thinks it's all about expressing solidarity. The other thing that's happening, which we've talked about in the past, is the way in which global conflict now feels more and more 19th century. In other words, as a system dominated by the United States begins to disintegrate into a system with many powers, you see these very strange, ambiguous relationships. And Ukraine and China 
are, of course, the things that are driving some of this. So you can see Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, being very mild in his language towards China. Why? Well, understandably, because he desperately relies on China to maintain economic sanctions against Russia, Mm. and he's terrified that they're going to ease up. Turkey, on the other hand, Erdogan has put himself back in the center of things because against all the odds, I didn't think he could do it. I was proved completely wrong. He managed to negotiate safe passage for grain out of Ukraine with Mm -hmm. Turkish ships. He has now again done another very interesting move where he was blocking the admission of Finland and Sweden into NATO, but he now seems to have dropped that objection, which he would have thought would irritate the Russians. But at the same time, he's just had his second meeting with Putin in a matter of days, where he seems to be rebranding himself as creating a kind of land bridge to Russia. So mm. these these different players, and this will be repeated, we're just looking at Turkey, Ukraine, but it'll be repeated 50 times around the world as different people end up with these strangely ambiguous relationships. What do we do with the US? What do we do with Europe? What do we do with China? What do we do with Russia? Often contradicting themselves. This the sort of foreign policy landscape that Donald Trump was desperate for, was basically strong guys sitting down and you know, carving up the world between them and deciding the fate of smaller countries. That's what thats what it's all about. We're so unsuited to it. Well, I'm so unused to it. If we're going to return to this world, we will have to, Britain, countries like Britain, will have to basically double the size of the foreign office. The French foreign office, about twice the size of the British foreign office in terms of core diplomatic staff. Because suddenly you have to have a really serious embassy in these places to try to negotiate as all these different countries are cutting deals in seven different directions. How do you think about your own commercial interests? How do you work the alliances? We didn't have to do that in the past because in the past we could easily line up behind the United States and Europe with a pretty clear single vision. This world, this multipolar world is now really showing its teeth. Well, I I think one of the other many depressing things to be coming out of this Tory leadership election is the the absence of any sense of a clear post-Brexit foreign policy that actually maximises Britain's strengths. And I know you keep banging on about the, the the sort of slimming down of the foreign office but it, it it really does matter and you see it particularly now when we are going to be needing to build these alliances and we just don't have the wherewithal to do it you you i'm sure speak to lots of am- current ambassadors i mean most of them are tearing their hair out about how much they have to do with the limited resources that they have by the way just on china Rory, there was another inter- really interesting thing i saw um and i can't remember where i saw it now but there was a piece i read about where on quite a lot of criticism of of the of Xi Jinping for not doing more on Taiwan. Now, whether that's being allowed by the censors as a way of sort of ramping the pressure up, but there, there was a whole theme of sort of you know this guy talks too much, but he doesn't do enough in relation to Taiwan. Well, that's very 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 dangerous, isn't it? Because if they're allowing that, that's usually being allowed as an excuse to get going, isn't it? That's a classic yeah. move from all authoritarian regimes. You yeah, create a sense yeah. that there's a groundswell of demand. I think Vladimir Putin tried to do quite a lot of this in relation to Ukraine, which is to get this illusion that there's a groundswell of demand to act, and then you have to act. Um, on, on the conservative leadership, very, very interesting. I mean, very interesting, firstly, that a YouGov poll suggests that Boris Johnson is still ahead of Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak in terms of people's views on who they think would be the best to take on Keir Starmer. So who, people, are, you know, people or members? No, this is a general population, general population. So not, not Tory members. 28% of the general population think Johnson would be the best to take on Keir Starmer compared to slightly less for Truss and Sunak. Actually, I think it's 28% for Truss, 27% for Sunak. But it's also 
um, 53% of Tory voters still think it was wrong to get rid of Boris Johnson, and only 41% think it's right. So that's more than half the Tory party, at least in this YouGov poll, thought that getting rid of Boris Johnson was wrong. Whereas, of course, 60% of the voters in the country thought it was exactly the right thing to do. Final one, 60% of Tory members think that 2050 target on carbon neutral should be pushed back compared to only 27% of the general population. So again, the way in which the conservative leaders decide to appeal to their right-wing base is going to be very important in determining things like climate. I, I thoroughly enjoyed. Well done, those demonstrators who got into the List Trust meeting and you know, disrupted it. I think we need a bit more of that. Leadership is meant to be about confronting the people who follow you with the real challenges that, and how to meet them. And they're not doing that. They're telling these golf club bores who make up most of the audience and most of the membership, uh, they're telling them what they want to hear. I mean, have you seen this ridiculous, utterly ridiculous social media video that Sunak has posted today of him shredding all the EU legislation, literally putting thousands of pages into a shredder to the sound of, to the tune of um, Land of Hope and Glory. I mean, it's the most <laughs> pathetic populist bullshit. And I actually think I had a bit of respect for Sunak. And I think you did at the start when he was actually presenting himself as the guy who was going to call out the, 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 the hard truths. He's just stopped doing it now. He's just pandering in the same way that that she is um, but the climate stuff's terrifying i mean look i'm in france at the moment and I w- we were out the other night talking to these local farmers that we know who do the, the vineyards and the olives and what have you they were saying that they've never ever ever known this place so dry they've never been so scared of forest fires and one of them was saying that he doesn't think he can last another year he doesn't actually think he can make a living off the land for another year i mean i think people in in britain are beginning to feel this you very kindly came up took a photograph of some trees uh, when he was staying with me and when we were um, looking at... It wasn't the only reason I went to I didn't... <laughs> you made that sound that I, I went to your place to take pictures of your trees. Anyway, the sad thing is that some of them have died. I mean, the, yeah. uh, the, the scorching that came out of that very, very extreme temperature has, of course, been bad, even, even up in mm. Scotland. And in the United States, for the last five years alone, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think that the climate bill has finally got through. The wildfires that everybody's been reporting a great deal. And the crop destruction, which maybe has been reported a little less, there's basically now a drought extending from Colorado to California, Yeah, um, are really making people begin to feel. There's an estimate, I think, that the last five years have cost the US economy $800 billion um, in terms of climate-related disasters. I tell you what, I tell, I tell you, so one thing, I, just before we leave the Tories, I, I, I'd, I'd like to point out that I thought Mark Drakeford showed real class when Liz Truss, having slagged off uh, Nicola Sturgeon as an attention seeker, then said that Mark Drayford was was like a low-energy Jeremy Corbyn. I thought, why is she sort of going around the United Kingdom just insulting people? So, of course, next day the Welsh media asked Mark Drakeford what he thought of the leadership contenders, and he said, I have nothing to say about either of them. They, have, they haven't already said about each other. Yeah, uh, very good. Very good. No, you're, you're right. It's, 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 well, there's been all this stuff on Twitter, isn't there? Where, when it's one of the things that goes wrong in these leadership things, which is that both of them are doing so much to attack each other's records and attack each, and attack, in fact, the economic policy of the government for the last three years. Um, that, um, yeah, there are these brilliant things on Twitter where people keep sort of putting forward the leadership candidates as the Labour Party political broadcast against them. 
Yeah. Okay. So, um, Alistair, just 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 to finish this off, I know you wanted to take us into to take us into the bingo, which I'm still looking forward to finding out what on earth the bingo is. I think our bingo. You're going to find out in a minute about the bingo, but I think our bingo players are going to be a little bit disappointed today. You haven't said a lot of the things that you normally say. We did Taiwan. You didn't even mention the semiconductors. <laughs> the advanced semiconductor chips. That's the key thing. Key thing to remember, 95% advanced semiconductor chips. Somebody's going to suddenly work out that I've got massive shareholdings in some advanced semiconductor chip industry. And I- oh, God, Rory, you can't say that. We'd have to declare that. Oh, I know. I've now remembered what I, was, what I was going to say. Boris Johnson and the dance. If you were getting married at his age, I mean, that dancing, did you see it? I don't, fortunately, I, I don't watch Boris Johnson dancing. That's, uh, that's really well, not my thing. Well, it was kind thing. of all over. It was all over the interweb. It's, is it a bit like an elephant in a tutu? No, he was always a one-arm dancing. He, he, it was, he was sort of a very, 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 very bad attempt at being John Travolta. And then Carrie brought the son in to kind of try and alleviate the embarrassment. Yeah, I'm not sure you're really selling this. I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to go straight online to have a look at that. <laughs> anyway, tell us about the bingo, Alistair. So the bingo... This wonderful, wonderful innovation by somebody called James Thomas. Basically, he's got a little chart and he's posted it on social media and he suggested to people that they tick off in each episode whether, <laughs> whether these things come up. So, for example, porridge and bagpipes is up there. Your ring, your wedding ring is there. Me speaking German is a good one. ABBA is another good one. Rory describes something as extraordinary. Uh, Alistair mentions private schools. Alistair mentions that you're European. Uh, Rory's special technique for finding things that that, that is, is mentioned. Uh, me banging on about Nolan principles. And this one, Rory, I just want to come back to this one thing. That's one from you. Uh, there's, me <laughs> mention, there's me mentioning populism, polarization, opposed truth. So, Rory, not only did we have about 700 questions this week, we also had more than 100 suggestions <laughs> For rest is politics bingo. And what is fascinating is how they're basically, when it's about you, it seems to be about what you, how you say things. With me, it's much more about the things themselves. So for you, for example, lots of people saying distinguished has to go on the rest is politics bingo. Uh, let me push back on that for a minute. Let's come back to that, if we may. Let's dig into that a little, and let's lead into that one a bit more. Whereas me, it's you not plugging the pro the, the podcast, Northern Ireland Protocol, slagging off Eton, uh, Burnley Football Club, Elvis Presley, uh, and where is Grace performing? So the interesting question is why are there why are they not picking up on your phrases? I mean, you also have distinctive phrases, but they clearly don't seem to drop into people's minds quite as much as... Maybe you're a better communicator than I am, Rory. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe you're just much less cliched than me. Maybe you just have a freshness of speech, which doesn't involve returning to the same phrases. I do I do try that. I do try that. But I, I think it's really, really interesting. I would have picked up with you. Definitely, I'd have picked up on Distinguished. I think I'd definitely... Somebody has pointed out you saying something nice about Theresa May, but then also me saying something nice about Tony Blair. But I, I just think it's it's brilliant that our listeners are now listening so intently that they can do Rest is Politics bingo and enjoy it. And I'm going to add in the word definitely from you. 
I want them to count how many times you say definitely. Absolutely, definitely. 100, 100%. 100% is another one I say a lot. Uh, so, well, thank you very much for that extraordinary bingo interlude. Thank you very much for listening to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. That's the very distinguished Rory Stewart and me, the Elvis Burnley-supporting German ABBA singing Alistair Campbell. Definitely. And just to take you back to the very beginning when we told you about the new Rest is Politics Plus, you can sign up to that at therestispolitics.com. 